0: Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. This lesson was given on Sunday morning, and I did not hit the record button, so I am recording that one day later. I am wrapping up my portion of the Summer of Psalms, and next week, Jeremy Dice will take over, and I believe he'll teach for a couple of weeks, and then Jeff Solomon will wrap up the summer for us. This morning, we are going to continue our discussion of Psalm 51. Last week, we read through the whole story in first, actually second Samuel, of David, Bathsheba, and Uriah, and then we concluded that story with Nathan confronting David, and he gave David the parable of the precious sheep. And in that parable, there is a man that loves this sheep, and a rich man takes the sheep because he coveted it, and he prepared it for his guest. And so, of course, in the story, David is, is outraged, and you know he gives his judgment that this man deserves to die, and that he should pay back four times. And then, of course, David, I'm sorry, Nathan says to David, you are the man. And I think he probably pointed at David and said, you are the man. And then David repents. We talked about sin, and we considered how David spent at least nine months in unrepentant sin, and he suppressed the truth of his sin, of adultery and murder. Our takeaways were that, We are to fear God and to love his law, but also to remember that this is done in God's power. So let's take a moment to pray before we get started on the lesson. Lord, I thank you for your mercy and your grace and your kindness towards us. I thank you for your servant, David, who wrote this Psalm in a difficult moment in his life. And I thank you that he was faithful And that so many people over the years have learned from this psalm. And as we study this morning, I pray that we will learn from it as well about what repentance looks like, about what your mercy and grace looks like, and that we may repent of our sins daily and put our hope and trust in you. Lord, I pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to read through Psalm 51 for the choir director a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifice. In burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. Have you ever walked into a dark room? A room that you're typically familiar with. Maybe you woke up from your sleep and you just needed to get a, a drink of water and you walk into the room and something's changed. You stub your toe because you know, some object was left there or maybe it was a Lego that was left in the middle of the room. Well, the other night I was walking through our living room in the dark and, you know, if you're like me, when you're walking through the living room or you're walking in the dark, at night, your goal is to try to stay asleep so that, or as close to sleep as you can so that when you go back to bed, you'll be able to fall asleep and you won't be laying there for another hour. Well, I did not see my hundred pound great Pyrenees dog and somehow he had moved or something and wasn't in his normal position. And if you've ever seen my hundred pound Pyrenees dog, there's no way to miss him if the light's on, but I missed him and I, I stumbled over him and I had quite the surprise and I was really confused for a moment. Um, I know I knew this room very well, but for some reason, something had changed. And in the darkness, I was you know, moving around and, and again, we were both surprised. Well, I think this is what it was like for Nathan when he confronts David with his sin. All of a sudden, the lights come on for David and he's been stumbling around in the dark, And if you remember his response, he says, I have sinned against the Lord. This is a very clear response that he gives. Very to the point. I've sinned against the Lord. His conscience, which had been suppressing the truth, was now fully awakened by the truth. And the goal in that whole situation of Nathan going and confronting David was that he would be brought to repentance. And by God's grace, That's what happened. Well, repentance is at the heart of the gospel message. John the Baptist said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus, when he started his ministry, also preached, Repent and believe the gospel. It is through faith in Jesus Christ and repenting of sin that we are brought out of darkness and into light. It is by faith and repentance that we continue to, to walk in the narrow path toward the celestial city. And we must not forget that. We must not forget that just because we came to faith through repentance at the very beginning of our walk with Christ, that we continue on daily in repentance towards Him. Without a daily examination of our lives, we are all susceptible to forming calluses on our heart so that they become hard towards God. And we just embrace more and more sin. So with that in mind, let's take a closer look at Psalm 51. In verse one, it says, "'Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions.'" So David has been found guilty before God. And his only hope at this point is for the judge, God in this case, to show him mercy. In fact, as we read through this psalm and study it, mercy is the theme throughout the whole psalm. Now, mercy can also, this, this word that we find in Hebrew that, they, that is used for mercy can also be translated as compassion, tender love, pity. The Legacy Standard Bible reads, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the abundance of your compassion. Blot out my transgression, I think this is an excellent verse to memorize. In fact, I spoke with Lieb just before I I gave this lesson, and he mentioned how this is a verse when he was much younger that he memorized. And, you know, it was a real blessing to him because of how rich it is and how it, it teaches us how we are to repent. Now, in the second part of the verse, it focuses on blot out my transgressions. And this is... Something that we're gonna look at a little later on, this this blot out my transgressions. Because I think that David is pulling this from another source in Scripture. Now, what David is not saying is David is not saying, erase my memory of my sins. He's not saying that, you know, we should just wipe the hard drive clean so that we forget what's happened. When you considered what has happened, there's really no way that David is going to be able to forget his sin. In fact, David is very focused on dealing with his sin and he's trying to learn from his sin. And that's what we're called to do as well. We're called to learn from our sin in the hopes that we will not commit that sin in the future. Now think about how you respond to your sin. I know that I'm guilty with trying to deal with my sin in my own power and strength. And the scriptures teach us that this is not the way that we are supposed to deal with our sin. We're supposed to deal with our sin according to God's mercy and his steadfast love. And as we continue on through this passage, you'll see that that's a theme that we we are to repent and we do it through God's strength and power. So verse two says, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. So, the language here describing sin of iniquity, transgressions, sin, like these three words that David uses, they're also found in another well-known passage in Exodus thirty-four. And as I was reading a commentary, it pointed back to that particular passage, saying, you know, this combination of iniquity, transgressions, and sin is is really only found from what I saw in in just that one other place. And so as I want us to turn to Exodus 32 right now, because as I spent time looking at this, this passage, I started seeing common themes from what we see in Exodus 32 here in Psalm 51 as well. So the setting starts back in chapter 32 of Exodus, where the Israelites had made the golden calf. God is angry and ready to destroy them. And he wants to start a new nation from Moses. Now, of course, that doesn't happen. And Moses pleads for the people. And Moses comes down from the mountain. And he sees what the people have done in creating this this golden calf. And he, of course, destroys the calf. And he grinds it up into powder. And he has them end up drinking it. Moses then returns to the Lord. And in verse 31, he says, Alas, this person has this, I'm sorry, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book. And I mentioned earlier, listen to that language of blot me out. Blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Again, notice the blot out language it's very similar to what we see in verse one of Psalm 51. Only David is, he's rephrasing it. And David asks the Lord to blot out his transgressions rather than his name in, in God's book. Now blot out, just think of it as, you know, taking some ink and blotting out a word or we might use some white out today, but that's the, the concept there. Now in chapter 33 of Exodus, Moses intercedes with the people And he has a conversation with God, asking God to honor his covenant despite the unfaithfulness of the people. In verse 13, Moses says to God, Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too this nation as your people. Again, he's appealing to the covenant language. And he, God said, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, this is Moses speaking, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So it's interesting that, that Moses Understands how important it is to have the presence of God go with him. And we're going to see that in Psalm 51, later on in the Psalm. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight. And I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And, and God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you, my name, the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now, you can see why David is would have looked back at this passage and thought of his own situation. Now, in verse 20, it's "But he said. You cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. Again, as we look forward on in this psalm, you're going to see language about God's face. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So then in chapter 34, Moses then cuts new tablets. In verse five, we read, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed by, passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. Now, even that steadfast love language, looking back in the beginning of, of a Psalms, verse one. Again, it's according to your steadfast love that that David is is asking for mercy. So the language is just so overlapping, it's amazing. But again, let's see, In I'm looking at verse six or verse seven, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And this is the part I really wanna emphasize, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. So that goes back to verse 2 and 3 of Psalm 51. So God is the one who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people. And pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. So I think David was modeling his repentance, at least in part, based off this passage. This was a moment where God remembered his covenant and remained faithful to the Israelites. And God also remained faithful despite his sin. Now, one thing, just kind of shifting gears here, one thing I want you all to notice is that true repentance is a very unnatural response. And I'm going to lean back on our conversation last week where we talked and looked at original sin, and we're going to see that sort of original sin language as we continue on in Psalm 51. But true repentance is a very unnatural response. The natural response when we are caught in our sin is to either lie or hide Or blame someone else. We could blame our spouse. We could blame God. Or we could even blame Satan. The demons made us do it. We see this in the garden. Adam and Eve hid. Adam blamed the woman. And not only that, he blamed God. That woman you gave me. She did it. And then the woman, of course, she blames Satan. Even after God regenerates our hearts... And we are born again, our corrupt nature remains. And we talked about that last week. We continue to have our sin nature that we deal with daily. Now, by God's mercy, David takes responsibility for his actions, and he is facing the reality of his sins. This is a mark of of genuine repentance. Repentance. So we're going to take a moment and look at counterfeit repentance to understand the difference between what true repentance looks like and counterfeit repentance. Now the prior king to David was Saul. So we're going to take a look at 1 Samuel 15. So in 1 Samuel 15, God gave a very clear command through the prophet Samuel in verse 3 for Saul to go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man, woman, child, and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. It seems pretty specific to me, right? Well, let's see what Saul does. In verse nine, it says, but Saul and the people spared Agag, the king of the Amalekites, and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So they took and, and kept the, the best of what, what the Amalekites had and destroyed all the worthless stuff. So in verse 13, Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. Um, no, no, you didn't. <laughs> verse 14, and Samuel said, What then is the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Samuel is is calling him out for his hypocrisy. In verse 15, Saul says, They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people. Notice who he's blaming. For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Notice he doesn't say my God. He says your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. (laughs) That's pretty direct. Stop. (laughs) I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? He's pointing to the authority that God has given Saul as head of the tribes of Israel. The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. Wow, this is pretty brazen here by by Saul. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So again, who's he blaming? He's blaming the people. He's not taking responsibility as the king of the nation. <clears throat> and Samuel said, "Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. So now here comes the repentance. I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So do you see the contrast between the responses of Saul and David? Saul blatantly disregarded the word of the Lord, both when the instructions are given and when confronted with the truth. It's only when he was presented with the consequences that he repents. Notice again his excuse. I feared the people. He is trying to rationalize his way out of his sin. And then to make matters worse, in verse 27, he reaches out for Samuel's robe to physically pull Samuel back. And he tears part of Samuel's robe. And Samuel tells Saul that the kingdom will be torn away from him and given to his neighbor, which, of course, we know is David. Now again, if you try to compare their sins, Saul, Saul was pragmatic in the way that he handled God's word. He was we we just looked at the story, he was trying to rationalize and say, come up with his own, own ideas of of what was best and how he could please the people. Now, David, when we look at his sins, he is committing the sin of adultery and murder. And it seems on the on the surface that David's sins were worse. And yet God shows him mercy. Both men were confronted of their sin with the word of the Lord, but their responses were very different. Why do you think that is? Well, Puritan Thomas Watson wrote a book on repentance that is well worth the $5 on Amazon. Highly recommend it. He writes, It is astonishing to consider what different effects the word has on some men. Some, at a sermon, are like the Ninevites in the book of Jonah. Their heart is tender, and they let tears fall. Others are no more affected with it than a deaf man with music. Some grow better by the word, Others grow worse. The same earth which causes sweetness in the grape causes bitterness in the wormwood. What is the reason the word works so differently? It is because the Spirit of God carries the word to the conscience of one and not another. One has received the divine anointing and not the other. I love how how Watson emphasizes that it is the word of God that convicts by the power of the Holy Spirit. As Reformed Christians, we talk a lot about the sovereignty of God in election, which we should, but we might not think about it as much in daily sanctification and repentance. God desires us to take our sins seriously and pay attention as the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. He holds us responsible when we ignore our conscience and His Word, when we do truly repent we must acknowledge that it was granted by God's mercy and compassion. And it was him that sovereignly ordained all of our repentance and he works through it. All right. Let's look again back at Psalm 51 and verse four. It says against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Now, the, the against you, you, you only have I sinned might sound like that he's ignoring what happened with Bathsheba and Uriah, but that's not what's, what's happening here. David recognizes that he has definitely sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba, but this is an example of hyperbole, and it's not uncommon in scripture. For example, in Second Chronicles 1, it says, King Solomon made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stones. Now, the point is not that you could go to Jerusalem and start counting the stones to try to figure out how much silver and gold that Solomon had in his day. That's not the point. The point was that they were very wealthy. And that's what David is doing here. He's emphasizing his sin against God. And what's interesting is that we see repetition of this phrase. I've sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What David is doing is he is repeating what has already been said to him. In 2 Samuel, at the end of the account of the murder of Uriah, it says, David had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then in the next chapter, when Nathan confronts David and says, you, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? David also, again, in Psalm 51 here, is repeating what is said before. He's re- recognizing that what he has done is evil in the sight of the Lord. He is agreeing with God's divine justice that what he has done is evil. Now, how often do we think of our sin against the Lord as evil? And we know that we sin in so many different ways. Now, I want you to consider that if someone comes to confront you as as Nathan did and confronts you about your sin, take it very seriously. Or if you're reading the scriptures and you're confronted by your sin, take it very seriously and be careful. Examine it according to God's word, and if you are guilty, this psalm is an example for you to follow. Now, verse 5 Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Now, we talked about original sin last week. So if you want to you know, learn more about that, I, I recommend going back to that lesson. But what does David need right now? He's, he's, his sin has been revealed and he's recognized that. He's proclaiming that over and over again. What he needs right now is the truth of God in his inward being. And he needs the Lord to teach him wisdom in his secret heart. And that's what we need as well whenever we sin and, and we, we go that through that process of repentance. Verse seven says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Now, why does, why does he talk about hyssop? Well, hyssop was used in the purification ceremony for leprosy, which was a skin, skin disease. And in Leviticus, there were instructions for cleansing lepers once they presented themselves healed. And so what they would do is the priest would go and meet the leper. And the leper has been in this colony with other lepers. And, you know, at some point he looks and and sees that his skin is clean. And so he goes and and there were um, instructions on how to enter back into the community. Like you couldn't just go right back into the community as a leper. You had to go through a purification process according to what the Lord had spoken and so, again, the priest meets with the man, and the man would wash himself and, and his clothes, and he would shave, and then two birds would be taken. And the blood of one of the birds would be spilt on the other bird, and then that, that other bird would fly away. And this, this portrays the end of the man's old life outside the camp. And the flight to freedom of the other bird pictures his liberation from the effects of the disease so there's a a beautiful picture here and then once this has been done the men could re-enter the the man could re-enter the camp and be joined back with the people of god now david does not have leprosy and yet he sees this from the old testament as applicable for his cleansing in this situation so that he can return in fellowship with god and god's people and be pure now jesus heals many lepers in the new testament And this is a beautiful picture that points forward to the work of Christ and cleansing of sins. Now, verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness, and let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Now, David is not talking about literal bones that were broken. He is describing the brokenness that is felt when sin is exposed before a holy God. In verse 8, we need to recognize that God is the one that broke the bones so notice that again, the bones that you have broken. So God is the one that has has brought about this brokenness and this deep anguish in in david's david's life and And so whenever we sin and we start to really recognize our sin and we feel that deep anguish for our sin. And it can be to the point of ph- being physically ill. That's something I've felt before. We need to recognize that this may be from the Lord. It's likely from the Lord if it's tied to our sin. And we need to understand why he's allowing that. Well, the theological term that we're talking about is called contrition. It's called, it's a godly remorse. It's openly confessing sin. open Openly willing to make restitution. And by restitution, there's an example of this in the New Testament, Zacchaeus, the tax collector in the book of Luke. So when he was, he had his encounter with Jesus and he, his life has changed. His heart is, is brought to love the Lord through repentance. What does he do? He vowed to pay back four times what he owed to anyone that he had defrauded. Now in verse 17, I'm going to skip forward a little bit here. It says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So that's one of the sacrifices of God is a broken spirit. This is a part of God's working in our cleansing, and it can be a painful process. In Proverbs 3, 11 through 12, we read, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. And sometimes with our own children, we we have to correct them and we want them to feel the weight of what they've done, not to the point where it crushes them and they just are are completely depressed and and despair. But we want them to feel that what they've done is wrong. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about a godly grief that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. So how often are, are we truly grieved by our sin? Or do we, like Saul, rationalize it away until we reach the, the moment of, of punishment or the, of loss? Now, the opposite of contrition is attrition, which we just looked at in Saul, and it's a pseudo-repentance. It involves remorse caused by a fear of punishment or a loss of blessing. Our example we'll look at here is in Hebrews twelve fifteen. It says, "See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent." though he sought it with with tears. So Esau was, was very upset about his sin, but he was not upset about it because that he had wronged a holy God. He was upset about what he had lost. He had lost his inheritance and he cried. He sought it with tears. So we need to keep in mind that just because we shed tears over our sin, if it's not true repentance towards the Lord, that it's, it's, it's really worthless. So our, our repentance needs to be for our sin before the Lord. Verse nine says, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Now this is interesting again. Hide my face from your sins. Exodus 33, we looked at that earlier. Whenever the Lord is talking to Moses and Moses wants to see God's glory. It says, you cannot see my face for no man shall see me and live. And when you think about that, the reason that no man can see the Lord and live is because of our sin. Just amazing. And again, the blot out all my iniquities. We, we looked at that earlier, but, but David repeats that here. Notice that David continues to be outraged over his sin. Do we have that sort of hatred towards our sin? Now, the next three verses are going to be a transition and a shift towards the focus on renewal and restoration. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Again, David has acknowledged his sin repeatedly throughout the psalm, and now he asks the Lord to bring him back into fellowship with himself. Have you ever hurt? Or been hurt by someone that you love. And you just feel like that wall has been brought between you. And until that relationship is restored, there's just a tension. I I know I experienced this a lot, especially early on in my marriage. And that was because I was very immature in the way that I related to my wife. And so there would be lots of times where, you know, walls would be put up of just foolish things. And, you know, that happens whenever we, our sin separates us both from those that we love and between the Lord. And David had felt that tension for at least nine months in unrepentant sin. And now he asks for a willing spirit so that he can obey. And notice that as we look at these verses, he's asking the Lord to do it. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart. He's asking the Lord to do it. He can't clean his own heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Please, Lord, make it new. Make my spirit renewed. Cast me not away from your presence. Oh, please, Lord, don't don't send me away like, you know, you are faithful to the Israelites in Exodus 33. Please don't cast me from your presence. Please don't take your Holy Spirit from me. And I, I, I think he knows that the Lord is going to be faithful and honor his covenant. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with the willing spirit. David is emphasizing what the Lord is going to do in his life. Now, verse 11 says, Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Who is the Holy Spirit? And why would that be such a bad thing? Well, the Holy Spirit is the counselor, He's the spirit of truth, He's wisdom, He comforts us in our troubles, He is God we we need the holy spirit we can't live without the holy spirit and these three verses demonstrate david's commitment to holiness and notice again that he is dependent on god to bring about that holiness verse 13 says then i will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you now i want you to take a, a moment and look back at the beginning of psalm 51 and read in that, that heading there, it says, For the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now, this is remarkable because what David is doing here is he writes this psalm and then he hands it to the worship leader for public worship within Israel. At the, they're they're going to worship this as a people, worship based off this psalm as a, as a people, and so, like, this would be like if, if you had a, a very, very public sin and and then, you know, you repented and you went to, to Cody and said, hey, okay, we're going to sing this song on Sundays and talk. We'll remember that the reason that, that this happened is because of this particular sin. But then we're going to talk about what the Lord had done. You know, and this is a remarkably public scandal. David's the king of Israel. And everybody's going to know what's happened. But notice how David is concerned at this point that sinners will, he's going to teach transgressors your way and sinners are going to return to the Lord. So his desire is that people will learn from his great sin and that they will turn to the Lord. Think about how God has been merciful and gracious to so many people who have read this, this Psalm over the years and brought them to repentance. It's just amazing. I want to make a point here because it would be easy to think, well, you know, David murdered and he committed adultery. And so, you know, my sin's not that bad. You know, I, I don't do, I, I don't murder people and I don't, I haven't committed adultery. So like, this isn't really for me. No, no, this is, this is for all of us. And this is to take our sins very seriously so that our hearts do not become hardened and calloused. Because, you know, when a, when a man works with his hands over time, he just continues to work and those calluses can form on his hands. And that's what can happen to our hearts if we don't allow the Holy Spirit to soften our hearts towards our sin. And, you know, with David, this sin that led to adultery and then led to the murder of Uriah, I think it happened over a period of time. And he had allowed his, his heart to become comfortable with sin. And so I think that, you know, he made this psalm for public worship so that this would be sang by all the people and that their hearts would not be be hardened. All right. So verse 14 says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud for your righteousness, of your righteousness. Now, let's respond contrast David's response in verse 14 with another familiar story in scripture involving murder. In Genesis 4, we see that Cain and Abel both brought sacrifices before the Lord. Yet the Lord was not pleased with Cain's offering and said, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So what was Cain's response? Well, he murders his brother. Well, then the Lord says, where is Abel, your brother? And Cain says, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord then pronounces a curse on Cain, which is really still merciful to him, given that Cain had premeditated his murder of his brother. And yet the Lord allowed him to live. And we read a few chapters later in 9, Genesis 9:6, that it says, Whoever sheds the blood by, of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his image. So Cain deserved to die for the murder of his brother. And yet the Lord had mercy on him. And yet there was still punishment. And so what is Cain's response? My punishment is greater than I can bear. And he fears or complains that someone might kill him. So I share this. Because maybe our sin isn't murder, but it is possible that we also try to pass the blame for our sins, complain about our punishment. The same consideration is for us as well. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So let's look back at at verse 14. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. Again, it says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. I think this is the New Testament equivalent as of John fourteen fifteen. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And isn't it remarkable that David is able to talk about singing of God's righteousness and trust God to take away his guilt for the murder. Arthur Weiser says, that Psalm 51 is not the fleeting mood of a depressed conscience, but the clear knowledge of a man who, shocked by that knowledge of his sinfulness, has become conscious of his responsibility. It is a knowledge which excludes every kind of self-deception, however welcome it might be, and sees things as they really are. So now, David, because the light has come on, He's repented of his sin. He sees things as they really are. And I think as you look through this Psalm over and over, that's what's happening here. And David now stays in that narrow path. He's not condemning himself beyond the guilt that is brought about by the Lord. he go overboard on that. But yet he's not excusing his sin like Saul. He's not passing the blame and pushing it off on someone else. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Now, this is where the book of Hebrews also gives us some great insight in the Old Testament. So let's take a look at Hebrews 10. In verse 4, it says, So sacrifices were such a common part of the Old Testament for both Israel as well as the surrounding nations. God clearly laid out the expectations for the Levitical priest in the Old Testament. And yet those were only meant to be a type and shadow pointing to Christ. He is the once and for all sacrifice. And our faith is in Christ alone for forgiveness. As we near the end of this psalm, David has been teaching us a lesson. It is the way that we are to approach God by confessing our sin with a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Finally, in verse 18 and 19, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So David closes out his psalm, asking the Lord to bless Jerusalem. He is still the king of Israel, and he understands that his personal holiness is tied to national blessings. Again, he takes responsibility. He understands his authority, and, and you compare that to Saul. Saul did not do that. He did not understand his authority. He did not take his responsibility as king serious. David understands that the security of the nation is tied to their faithfulness to God. I'd like to conclude today with the story of a martyr who died for her faith and was deeply impacted by Psalm 51. Lady Jane Grey lived from 1536 to 1154. Her grandmother was Mary Tudor, Queen of France, and younger sister of England's King Henry VIII. Henry VIII is the king that founded the Church of England. And when Henry VIII died, he chose Lady Jane at age 16 as a Protestant to be the next queen to keep Prince Mary, a Catholic, from the crown. Now, Mary, also known as Bloody Mary, gained support from the military. And she was able to overthrow Lady, Lady Jane. And Lady Jane, only, Lady Jane Grey only reigned for nine days before she was sent to the Tower of London. Now, just before her death... All who were condemned to die were allowed to make a final speech, which I'm going to read. I pray you all good Christian people to bear me witness that I die a true Christian woman and that I do look to be saved by no other mean, but only by the mercy of God in the blood of his only son, Jesus Christ. And I confess that when I did know the word of God, I neglected the same, loved myself and the world. And therefore, this plague and punishment is happily and worthily happened unto me for my sins. And yet I thank God that of his goodness, he hath thus given me a time and respite to repent. And now, good people, while I am alive, I pray you assist me with your prayers. She then asked the audience to recite Psalm 51 with her. Her final words were, Lord, Into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then this young 16-year-old was martyred. We are very blessed to have such a great cloud of witnesses such as David and Lady Jane Grey that have gone before us. I hope you have a blessed, blessed day and thank you for your time.